We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the field of 68 After Dark. We're going to be joining you guys to watch the last four minutes of the second game of the Jimmy V Classic doubleheader between Villanova and Syracuse. My name is Rob Doster. I'm joined today by two guys that you probably recognize, Archie Miller and Sean Miller. Gentlemen, how are we doing? What's going on? How are we doing, Rob? Good. Good. Doing well. Good to be back, Rob. Uh, it is good to be back with you guys. It's uh, It's been a while since I've been on camera with you. Normally, I'm, I'm behind the scenes doing um, all the production stuff uh, that Dagan Hughes, who is our producer here, normally does. So what are your takeaways here? Villanova has shot – I think this is the craziest stat. They've shot 48 threes tonight. They set their program record for the most threes ever attempted in a game uh, with 10 minutes left um, in the second half of this game. So, Arch, what are, you, what, what are you taking away from Villanova here? Well, Villanova, you know – their, their style has always been predicated on, on, on the three. Um, you know, usually they get a lot of paint touches with their perimeter players posting up off the dribble, the dribble drive game. But with the zone, they've sort of eliminated that one leg, you know, of their attack. You know, you can't really back down a zone and, and play the way that they play. So they've spaced them a lot, five out, and they've pretty much tried to run them out of room and they've taken just an crazy amount of threes um, but Villanova wins on both ends of the floor and I think that's probably the biggest thing as this game is wore on Syracuse only has 51 points yeah you know looking at Villanova this year and although their style is very similar from year to year you know every once in a while your personnel changes and coming into tonight's game like when you look at their style components point distribution I mean they were number 10 in America uh, from the three-point line. So it's only nine teams that depend more on scoring from beyond the arc than Villanova. And that's prior to tonight. And I think what's unique about them, and I'm sure this is a point of concern for Jay Wright and his staff, is they're two-pointers. They're 348. So they're scoring from behind the arc or at the foul line. And you play against Syracuse zone with that type of team, you see a record of threes going up and guess what? You know, not a lot of twos. So I think as the season goes on, they'll continue to develop more ways to be able to score from two and get fouled. But that's, that's a heavy reliance on the three point line for sure. Biggest, the biggest number in this game tonight is the 25 offensive rebounds that Villanova's had. I mean, a lot of them are long balls missed, but three, but you know, they're all, they're 51 to 32 on the glass against Syracuse right now, 25 second shots. That's why the threes are going up the way they are. They're getting them back and they're probably fanning them out for another one. But um, Syracuse couldn't rebound the long balls, you know, well enough tonight. I mean, yeah. that's not on the Syracuse team, right? Is, is yeah. when you play that zone, it's difficult to get on the glass. When you- no, no question. You know, that's the one stat, even when Syracuse was immensely talented, in the zone with length, they give up a lot of second shots. They do almost, you almost kind of say like, man, is it, how are they okay with giving up that many shots? But I think Arch, the way they, the, the other deceptive part of the zone over the course of time, that zone is they force way more turnovers, get a lot more shot blocks and steals than you think. And I think that part of Syracuse, what they're going through right now is they don't turn you over, steal it, block shots maybe as easily as some of their previous teams. And yet they're still giving up the, the second shots, right? 
So uh, I think that's obviously. Yeah, I mean, I think the one the one difference in this team and a lot of the Syracuse teams is, you know, when you turned it over against their zone, it it was a dunk on the other end of the floor. I mean, a lot of times the pass just led to a dunk and a lot of easy transition baskets off of those turnovers. And they're definitely not as quick as athletic as long. You've seen them change their shape a little bit, I think, to protect the paint even a little more because, you know, Edwards has really improved as a player and they need his length on the floor. They need that size. He's the one guy that gives them, you know, a shot blocker in there a little bit. You know, he's got three tonight, but he's he's improved. But when he comes off the floor, they become very, very small. You know, the other part about Villanova, no matter who you talk to about Villanova, the one constant is they do a great job of taking care of the ball. You know, coming into the game, the top 10 in the country. And, and only got 10 tonight. And again, that you think about what we talked about, Arch. When you add up the second shots they got against Syracuse's zone and you play against Syracuse's zone with 10 or fewer turnovers. You're going to win. I mean, if they have a big night from three, the game probably gets out of hand. No, quite. Yeah. I mean, when you have that type of rebound despair, they're plus 20 on the glass, 27 second shots, and they've only turned it over 10 times. It's very hard to lose with those two numbers in particular, regardless of how you're shooting the ball. Yeah, they've taken 23 more shots so far tonight than uh, than Syracuse has. And I think it's worth noting they trailed at halftime. Eight of Villanova's 10 turnovers came in. Right. Um, let, let me ask you guys this. Where in the first half, right? Yeah, in the yeah. first half. Where do you guys kind of they played almost twenty minutes with two turnovers, Rob? Yeah, that's 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 a heck of a that's a heck of a thing. I don't think many teams are able to do that against that type of zone. And again, remember we just said the deceptive deceptive part about Syracuse's zone is the way they steal the ball, block shots, and force turnovers, and that makes up sometimes for their lack of defensive rebounding. When they don't do that, when they don't force turnovers get those steals and that rebounding still a problem, then they really have to outscore you, which with the team that they have this year, there are times they'll probably be able to do that. Yeah. I've always thought that it was a little bit more difficult to shoot against the Syracuse zone based off the way that they play. Cause they don't really let you like drive and kick. It's a lot of threes when the ball is swinging around the perimeter. And I mean, tell me what you guys think about this. I feel like when you're catching. I've, I've had two, two, I had two NCAA tournament games against two different teams at Syracuse. The first one, um, they had a terrific team that year. They had, you know, Raheem Christmas inside um, and, and their wings were, were uh, Grant, who's now in the NBA um, and, the, and their guards were, were Ennis and a couple of those guys. They were really, really big. I mean, and long. And the shot blocking was incredible. Everything around the paint, they almost baited you at times to put it in the middle. They wanted that shot. And they covered so much above the free throw line that you were playing, you know, really sideline to sideline. You were scared to get the ball below the foul line um, with the pass. They just couldn't make the pass a lot of times. And you don't get those traditional step-in threes against them as much as you think. Um, the second time we played them, um, they gave us all twos. I mean, they, they, they covered so much ground. I think Mike Benjay was up top and he's about six foot nine. And uh, I'm not sure the other guy that was up top with them, it, it may have been Moore or uh, Howard, or one of those guys the year we played them, but they were six, six and six, nine up top. And you can't see over top to even feed it into the logo. And once you pass it to the wing, you know, they cover so much space up. But to me, the hardest thing to play against them when you really watch it, a lot of the times there's four defenders above the foul line when the ball is on the perimeter, which is very unorthodox. You say to yourself, hey, we got to attack the baseline. We have to attack this. But it's very difficult to get it down there. And if you watch tonight, one thing about Villanova, because of the way they play, they can play five out. They run them out of guys at times. And they're not – they can get the ball swung a little bit more than I think a lot of teams do with the way that they play. But it's not your traditional rhythm threes that you get. And um, those teams that we played against, I mean, you were scared to death if you turned it over. It was going to be a layup down the other end. So let me ask you guys this about Villanova. Where do you, where do you kind of rank them in terms of, uh, I think everybody looks at Purdue as the best team in college basketball. We've seen Villanova go up against Purdue. I think they held a, an 11 point lead with 10 minutes left in that game, but where do you kind of put them in the pantheon of the best teams in college basketball uh, this season? Sean, I'll go to you first on that one. They're right there. Uh, you know, they're top five in America and offense. We talked about why very unique because they're so heavily dependent 
on the three-point line, but they do a great job of taking care of the ball, and they're always efficient. The one thing I would say just kind of watching them here is they're more of a top 50 team on defense. In the past, sometimes their defense was actually better than their offense, or both the offense and defense became top 10. You know, their improvement defensively, and I think some of it is they're not big. You know, they, they really aren't just around the rim, and, you know, they play their style, but just – Generally speaking, I, I think as you watch them, what to watch with them is their defense. You know, can they continue to improve on it and make that better? Because offensively, no matter what it is, I mean, when you're where they're at entering Christmas, that's not going to change a whole lot here in the next couple of months. Yeah, I mean, I would say that Villanova can be anybody on a neutral floor on a one-game setting. So if you say, are they good enough to win it all? There's no question. They've held double-figure leads late against UCLA, a game they lost, and against Purdue. They had a double-figure lead in both of those games. I think the one area of concern is at the five spot. You know, um, when they have to substitute with foul trouble um, and Roundtree's even coming back in there a little bit now, I think, to help the cause, he was actually going to be out for the whole year. But Eric Dixon plays such a big role for them. You know, he's a mismatch on offense, but he is a little undersized, but he is quick enough where they'll switch one through five the whole game and they won't care. He gives them, you know, their sort of bread and butter attack. But when he's out of the game, um, to me, even tonight, when you watch Roundtree sub in, Syracuse got the switch and really, really attacked him. You know, he may not be all the way back right now, but I worry about their interior depth and their interior size where they, they could run into some problems against different types of teams. But when you don't turn the ball over the way they don't turn it over and you shoot the three the way they shoot the three, I mean, they can beat anybody on a given night. And um, they got to be the favorite going into the Big East with the schedule that they've played so far. And I mean, if you just look at what they've done so far, they went to UCLA already. They've beaten Tennessee neutral, played Purdue neutral. Um, now they got Syracuse here neutral. They have to go to Baylor um, on Sunday. And to me, that would be an unbelievable style component type of game at Baylor. That'll be a great game. Yeah, that'll be a fun matchup. I think it's it's how old this team is too. Old and physical. Yeah, they've, they've been with Jay forever. You don't really see it on TV, but when you see these guys in person, they're strong. They're, yeah. They're, they're, they're tough. And I think people kind of view Villanova teams as, as, as soft and maybe not, not as – Complete opposite. opposite. I think if you play against them and you see like, hey, they're going to switch these screens and put, you know, Justin Moore on your center – your center has no chance on him if he's doing what he's supposed to do with how physical they are and how, how strong they are when they play. You know, he's a junior at 210. Gillespie's now old as it can be. You got Samuels, who's a stud as a senior. Slater, who's a stud as a senior. Dixon's now a third-year sophomore. I mean, they're playing old guys, physical guys. And they, believe me when I tell you, they're one of the most fierce teams out there when you play against them. All right, so let's talk about hey, Rob, that's why, though, the one thing about them, top 50 on defense, you know, I'm, you know, you could say, hey, you know, Sean, there's a lot of basketball left. Top 50 is not top 25 or top 10. There's a big difference between playing against a top 50 team defensively. Villanova is not an elite team defensively. Their lack of height, size, shot blocking, rim protection at times does them in. Right now, they're an elite, best in the country offensive team. And the other part about Villanova that I that sometimes I marvel at is sometimes you don't talk about their pace. I mean, it's the, one of the slowest in the country. It's incredibly deliberate. It's a different feel when you have the ball. It's definitely a different feel when they have the ball. If you're one of those teams getting up and down and all of a sudden you play Villanova, man, the game slows down in a big, big way. And like you said, Rob, as they have so many experienced players that are used to that style, I think it makes them – you asked the question, can they play against any team in America? Can they be a Final Four team? Absolutely. And I would say that the one thing, their defense is not nearly as good as their offense. So let, let me ask you guys this. The, the thing that people always talk about with Villanova's offense is they don't really run plays. They just kind of have concepts, and, and Jay basically teaches them 
how to play basketball, you know, five on five, whatever it is. How difficult is that to prepare for? Is that something where, I mean, when you have sets, you can say, okay, he's going to make this move. He's going to come off this double screen. Uh, when they make this call, this is what the play is going to be. But they don't really do that. They just kind of go out there and play, right? I mean, I think there's probably a little more method to their madness than people probably understand. Um, but they, they're an isolation team as much as anything. I mean, you have to deal with perimeter players in the post. You have to deal with perimeter players on drives and ISOs and you have to deal with their center inside and outside. And a lot of the time that you're playing, it is the best offensive team that you'll see drive to pass. I mean, they are incredible drive to pass team. It's one of the hardest things to do with a team is to get guys to drive the ball almost as bait. And then they land on two feet. They throw bounce passes to the corner. They make one more passes. It's, 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 it's incredibly impressive with the way that they attack you with the pass off the dribble. They, they bait you in constantly. And, uh, you know, to me, um, he gets guys in the spots that he wants. And there's a lot of massaging out there going on that you don't realize it's happening. But they're very difficult to play for because it's a matchup game. All right, Sean, you mentioned the pace that Villanova plays at. Part of why they're so effective and why they can win games and why they score points is because they're really efficient offensively. Another team that plays at a slow pace is Virginia. And one thing that we've seen out of Virginia this season is that the offense just is not there this season. Uh, they lost tonight at James Madison. Uh, they only put up 49 points. Uh, what's, what's, Sean, what's going on with this, this Virginia team? What's going on with this Tony Bennett team? Normally you see – Virginia kind of have these these years where they they drop off like this. Yeah, just looking at him from afar, uh, you know, the talent and experience, the depth of talent that they've recently had. And sometimes I think because of their style of play and how well known Tony Bennett is as a defensive coach, you overlook the firepower and the players that when they won the national championship and they win the ACC who was actually on their team. I mean, it's like a roll call of recent college players that have left and they're playing in the NBA, you know, and not just in one particular class, but multiple classes. You know, right now, if you look at their team, part of, I think, what they're dealing with scoring is that they don't have those shot makers, the guy that can score at the end of the clock that maybe they've had in the past. And, you know, defense, sometimes Rob can really affect your offense, Right. Like if you're not a good defensive team, it works against your offense. And that's the beauty of basketball and vice versa, right? If, if your offense struggles, it starts to actually affect your defense a little bit. And I think no matter how stingy and how slow Virginia wants to be on defense in the pace that they play, their offense is, is like in the way. It's, it's cluttering their path to success at the moment. And I think there's some of it, they'll get better at it as the season goes on. But like we've talked about on this pot on this podcast, you know, over the last month, November is gone and pretty soon December will as well. There are too many important games. There's too much that is going to affect your ability to make the NCAA tournament or have that successful year. And, and these opportunities are are leaving us quickly as we get more into Christmas and after Christmas. So I think Virginia's struggles are with their offense and their lack of shot making and players who can score at the end of the shot clock. Yeah. I mean, Virginia two years ago, uh, the COVID cancel year, um, a lot of people forget that year, you know, how they started that year off and uh, you know, they, were 234 on offense in the COVID cancellation year. That's not they went, good. They went 23 and seven. They yeah. went 15 and five in the ACC. And they were the number one team in America on defense. Right. You know what I mean? So they balanced a poor offensive year where they shot 311 and three point field goal percentage on offense. They had abysmal numbers that year. But what balanced it to me was a dominant defense where you they may get 49, but you were going to get 47. You know, I think that's the case. This year's team doesn't have the experience level that a lot of his teams have had. They're counting on Armand Franklin and they're counting on um, Jaden Gardner. That's two first year transfer players who have never played at Virginia. That's two of their better players. They're going to play a lot of minutes. That's a big deal. And when you look at the rest of their squad, other than other than Kied Clark, Beekman and Shedrick are second year players. 
And the other guys, if they've played at all in their career, um, has been very sparingly. So you don't have a very experienced Virginia team. And I think one of the differences, it's probably mass. They've had a lot of games where they probably scored 49 and struggled on offense, but the other team just probably got 45. And right now what's happening is they're struggling on offense, but they're a first-year put-it-all-together defensive team as well. And that's probably the most concerning thing for those guys. I think Coach Bennett a few um, days ago when they lost to Iowa uh, post-game, the only thing that he really talked about was the ineptness to be able to guard. You know, Iowa – Iowa could score at will, it seemed like, on them. And he talked, you know, exclusively after that loss against Iowa about their defense. So I think they may have their flaws on offense. Uh, They're going to have to ratchet it up on defense as much as anything that they can do, because I'm not sure how much cleaner they're going to get on offense other than maybe taking care of the ball. But, But to me, where they're missing in action a little bit is that probably that system on defense that they have a lot of guys know what they're doing and they're going to be able to win games. They know how to win games that way. And even tonight at James Madison, which by the way, Virginia doesn't ever go to James Madison. That's a hard game in a hostile crowd. And they did make the comeback, but um, for them not to be able to win the game with their offense is one thing, but I think that they've won a lot of games when they've struggled on offense. It's their defense right now it probably isn't as up to snuff as some of these other teams that we're talking about. And right now they're 49th on defense overall on the season and um, offensively they're 91st. So, you know, if one thing's going to come up faster than the other, to me, it's going to be their defense. Yeah. Hey, Rob, speaking of defense, how about Texas tech game today? <laughs> you know, what a, what a big win that was. We talk about grinding it out against an sec team. And it leads me to just saying like, how awesome is the Big 12 Conference? I mean, from top to bottom right now, I mean, it, it to me is America's best college basketball conference. They're getting the most done in non-conference play. And I believe this, that they'll get the most teams in this coming NCAA tournament. I mean, play that round-robin schedule once they get into Big 12 play. But whoever wins the Big 12 this year is one heck of a team. Arch, you notice how he pivoted from being a Pac-12 guy to a Big 12 guy now? <laughs> I'm going to address Pac-12 when I get the opportunity. I hope he does address the Pac-12, Rob. I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of talking going on, and it just hey, keeps- when it, whenever you can ask me the question with respect, I will give you my thoughts on the Pac-12. But <laughs> I'm going to get it in. They they deserve at least to be talked about. All right. <laughs> they will. I mean, they, they, they will. They're, they're off to a tough start. I mean, there's going to be some quad three and four games in conference play that you weren't counting for in the Pac-12, where in the opposite in the Big 12, I said this tonight, Oklahoma State is not eligible for the NCAA tournament this year. Every other team as it stands today can do enough in the next two and a half weeks to go into conference play and have a chance to make the tournament. That's an incredible deal for a league. Yeah. And I tell you what, what TJ is doing at Iowa State as a coach, yep. nobody has done a better job coaching his team than TJ. And, you know, coming off of COVID, transitioning from UNLV, being a first-year guy there, and just watching him take that team over and take them through the non-conference season, man, it's, it's beyond impressive. What hey, the here's the thing with TJ. TJ's got the Iowa-Iowa State rivalry game on Thursday at home which the place will be going complete bonkers. Yeah. Well, you know, One of the most you, underrated uh, yes. places to play in college basketball. Hilton. It is. It's Hilton, right? Hilton, Hilton, Hilton. Hilton will be Hilton Magic. Yeah. Hilton Magic will that, be in that is one loud. That is one loud place. They have a very underrated fan base. They love college basketball and no, no question. They're going to be, they're going to be out. But that place is going to be jumping. And if he went, if, if, if Iowa state can take care of business against Iowa, they're going undefeated in the conference play. That's an, that's coach of the year up up until that point. I mean, they're they're going to be damn near eleven and zero heading to the Big Twelve. Rob, if somebody told you Iowa State would be eleven and zero entering the Big Twelve, I mean, think about what money would you put on that beforehand? And again, All let's give credit to where credit's every, every due. Every penny that I have, I would yeah. bet against them. I mean, they came from from nowhere, and uh, you know what? He's done an amazing job, but. Guess what? He bolsters the Big 12 conference because whoever finishes in last place or in 10th place or ninth or whatever that is, 
is going to be a very good team. And in some other conference, that team would finish fourth, third, right? Um, so I, I think that uh, early on, if you say, what are some of the storylines of college basketball, the developing power of the Big 12 conference from top to bottom, really even hard to talk about who's at the bottom right now, but they have uh, college basketball's best conference and they're getting the most bang for the buck. And again, people could talk about how ugly the Texas Tech game is. Texas Tech just beat Tennessee in New York City. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. The SEC looks at Tennessee as one of their good teams and a team that has also got off to a great start in non-conference play. Texas Tech beat them. And whether they beat them 44-41, again, the Big 12 just beat the SEC. And I think that's one of the narratives that I always like to share is as a coach, you're constantly told, oh, coach, your team will get better as the year goes on or this other team when they get to conference play, look out. It's too late. College basketball, a lot of it's determined in the month of November and December. Who did you beat? Who did you lose to? Who did you play? Where are the games played at? And uh, and some of these games, as we continue to move forward, are really, really important. Tomorrow, tomorrow night's actually a big night for the Big 12. You know, you have UConn going to West Virginia. Mm-hmm. You have Kansas State at Marquette. And then you have TCU, who's got Utah. Pac-12, I believe that's neutral. I think that may be in Texas, but that's that's you're coming down the home stretch. I mean, I would say all three teams are probably looking at that being one of their last marquee power conference, non-conference, you know, matchups. And um, we'll see who takes care of business, you know, maybe tomorrow night. But I really believe is there's a chance, you know, take Oklahoma State out of the equation there's a chance that the big 12 is going to get some teams in the NCAA tournament with maybe uh, what do they play a true 18 game round Robin? Yep. 18 games. I'm, I'm going to say that, you know, in 18 games, I'm going to say that um, seven and 11 and eight and 10 for some teams is going to be damn near good enough in the, in conference to make the tournament. Rob, the net came out today, right? Today, the first release of the net. I think it was yesterday. This whatever it was, it was this week. And, and I, I wanted to mention that actually because Iowa State is uh, is one of the top three teams. I'm sorry, one of the top four teams in the Big Twelve. They are 21st in the net. They're outside the top 75 on Ken Palm still, but they're 21st in the net, and that kind of uh, 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 solidifies your point. Let me let me just say this, Rob. Let, let's let's cause up one confusing point for anybody who doesn't understand that one point. How could Iowa State be 21st in the net and 70th in Ken Palm? Because that's that's a big deal. If you're in the 70s in Ken Palm, you're outside the tournament field. Can I give you the answer? Well, I would just say this. One big reason is this. Ken Palm, he's going to start the year prior to the season starts with games, and he's going to pre-rank. You're already going to have a strength and efficiency. So when you start to play games, you're already being credited with some of those where the net starts from absolutely scratch zero, you know? So when they evaluate from day one, they're not going on any preconceived notions. They're going from day one, what's your record? And let's take into account everything. So why would Iowa state be 50 spots up? Iowa state coming off the year they had last year from a preseason perspective. I don't know what their ranking in Ken Palm was, they got to work their way up the ladder. It was it was outside the top 100. So right, they so they're working their way up the ladder. We're in the net. They're eight and zero. They've won uh, two games. Xavier, Memphis. Um, they got another one on. Who did they just beat this past weekend uh, at Creighton? Mm-hmm. They've already they've already solidified a top 25 net with, with their with their schedule. So this one big difference is the net starts from ground zero. So as you evaluate the net you're actually seeing nothing that anything predicted or anything like that. I think that's a big point. And that's, that's why you see some, some weird rankings. And I know Dagan, Dagan Hughes, our producer has a graphic here. There were nine teams from outside of the, uh, the they're outside of the power conferences that are um, ranked in the top 30 of the net right now. We have Houston at four. We have Gonzaga at eight. We have Wyoming out of the mountain West sitting at seven Oh at ninth in the net right now. Uh, and then it gets a little bit weirder at the bottom. We have BYU at 20, Loyola at 22, Wagner sitting at three and one at 24, Colorado State at 25, Chattanooga 27, and San Francisco at 28. They, that's why you see some weird things like this at the start of the night. I, I want to ask you guys this. Um, how do you feel 
about this metric? How do, how do you feel about the net? Is this something where you think the NCAA got it right? Um, do you like the way that they've been utilizing it when it comes to seeding the tournament and determining who's getting into the tournament? How, how do you guys feel about the, the rating? Because you're in it. We can sit here and opine as media members as much as we want, but you guys are the ones that are kind of in it dealing with this. No, I think, really, yeah. I think it's really good. But I mean, look, today's the first one. It's the least accurate of all the nets. Check back two weeks from now, four weeks from now. Let's look two months from now and say, look at the first net. It evolves. But here's the one thing that I learned as a coach in the recent NCAA tournaments, probably the last five years, as it's become a little bit more towards being efficient, not just where'd you play, who'd you beat, the eye test, as they've added efficiency. Rob, when you have a chance to beat someone to death, you kill them. I'll give you an example. You know why Gonzaga is in the first in the first net because Tarleton State took them to the wire. If they would have beat Tarleton by thirty, Gonzaga'd be like third or fourth. Arizona, you know, my old team and off to a great start, but I believe they're third in the first net. Just take a look. They've beaten Wichita State on a neutral court, Michigan on a neutral court, but what have they done a great job of? Look at their scores when they've played the games that they've played. They're not winning by 20. They're winning by 45. You know, like when you sub sportsmanship, and I get it, you know, sportsmanship is really important. But you know what's more important than sportsmanship? Making making the actual tournament. I mean, that, that so my point is in these November, December games, when it's seven minutes left in a game and you're up 20, what you used to do as a coach is not really worry about the final score you put your walk-ons in early. It's like the greatest feeling in the world. I'm telling you right now, that last four minutes of that game means something because your efficiency is judged on margin of victory. And I don't know, like, I don't mean to say sportsmanship isn't that important. That's not what I'm saying. But you kind of get my drift. Like, if you can win 82-45 instead of 70-54, to that's a huge difference. And they are the metrics in the efficiency are rewarding the teams that punish the teams they're supposed to beat by a large margin. And I think you're seeing that in the first, in this first uh, net. And that's something that you have to be aware of in November, December, you get into conference play, same thing, Rob, you're on the road in conference play against a good team, let's say a quad two, and you have that big night and you could put it on them by 20 on their home court, if you looked at the difference in, in, uh, in your net, it just it goes through the roof, right? It jumps up because your efficiency is so rewarded. And I think that's been the big difference between adding efficiency to this as opposed to what they used to do. That's a fact, by the way. I mean, Bo Ryan was the best. You know, he didn't necessarily win 90 by scoring 90 points, because like Villanova, they played a deliberate style, but they would beat a team like 75 to 38, right? And when you looked at where they were on Ken Palm and where their efficiency was, they were always really high because there were no nights off. They beat the teams they were supposed to beat. And when they had a chance to really put it on a team, they did. And the metrics, they reward that right now. Yeah. I think the, the other thing to note probably is this, Rob, is, you know, the, the net is, is the primary sorter. You know, I think when you hear the NCAA and you hear uh, the gurus talk, it's not the only thing that they're looking at, but it does give them the most accurate uh, way of sorting the teams, you know, where they can have an, they can have the nitty gritty sheet. I can compare Arizona and I can compare uh, Michigan and let's look at the nitty gritty sheet, but they have to be able to sort those teams and I think the net gives them the most information that you can. But I will say this, and I think this is the big point, when it all comes down to it and people start to judge the, the resumes and whatnot, the number one impact, the number one indicator on the tournament is your strength of record, not your strength of schedule. You know, you could play the toughest non-conference schedule and you could play the toughest schedule in the country, but you could be 500. You know, that, that doesn't help you, but it's who you beat where you played the game and at the end of the day what is your strength of record and I think your strength of record as you get into February and March really starts to cut the fat away and start to you can really start to focus in on what is a team really 
about right. the efficiency out. Your, to your point, though, you know how you get that strength of record that you talked about? It's who your conference beat in non-conference play. Correct. So in order for you to feel the way you feel as a bit former Big Ten coach, and you had that gauntlet where you're like, you know, Sean, I'm playing five quad one games in a row in the month of February. Three of them are on the road. You know how it got that? It got that because of what your league did in November and December. And that's where we're at. When you play a game like this little game, Texas Tech versus Tennessee in New York City, and a game's 44-41 or whatever, Texas Tech wins, they bring that strength to the Big 12. And guess what? Like, that's why the Big 12 is going to get the most teams in in the NCAA tournament this year, and deservedly so. Deservedly so. And to your point, Butler got a big win at Oklahoma. Yes, big win for them, yeah. And that's going to matter because Oklahoma is going to play in that conference where they play someone tough. And every time that they play a game, it's going to boost those numbers up a little bit. And since Butler has the win on the road there, that's going to boost them up a little bit. Rob, think about what Butler just did for the Big East, not just themselves. They won on the road, right, against the good Oklahoma team. They now carry that into the strength of the conference. And guess what? Butler is, is making the Big East even deeper. So if I'm coaching at Xavier right now, and I'm dying to get into the NCAA tournament, and I have an NCAA tournament team. Tonight, you're cheering so hard for Butler. And please beat him, because when you play Butler twice, and sometimes three times, it's a much more meaningful game. Either way, whether you win or whether you lose, which opens the door for me to talk for one minute about the Pac-12. They probably don't deserve a, 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 a large dialogue here, but there's three teams at the top of the Pac-12. Okay, I'll put those three teams up on a neutral court against anybody, even some of the heavyweights in the Big 12. And that's UCLA, Arizona and UCLA. The one team that hasn't performed. USC, right? USC. I said USC, UCLA and Arizona. I'm sorry. USC, UCLA, Arizona. The one team that hasn't played up to the standards of the last decade is Oregon. And it's a shame because the narrative you're going to hear about Oregon is they get better as the year goes on, and they do. But unfortunately, because of what they've done in the non-conference, you're going to play them in January and February, and they're going to have the opportunity to beat you. And when they do beat you, it will really hurt, right? And that's what we're talking about here, the power of the non-conference schedule. But on a neutral court, UCLA, when they get Cody Riley back, right, and Peyton Watson continues to develop as that incoming freshman, they have already proven by their win against Villanova and the way they're playing that they can get to final four again. They can be a back-to-back final four program. When I talk about USC, they're picking right up where they left off. If you look at their defense, their defense is outstanding. They're old. I mean, they have a lot of returning players from the team that had a great season a year ago. They don't have Evan Mobley, right? But his brother came back and Boogie Ellis leaving Memphis coming to USC and solidifying their backcourt and their point guard position. He's playing great. He not only gives them a quality player, but he's old. He's experienced. So I love USC's defense and experience, and they know how to win because those guys had a great year a year ago. Ditto for UCLA. And for me, talking about Arizona is obviously easy, but a lot of returning starters. I think the quality of talent with Ben Matherin, Christian Coloco, Julius Tabellis, Kerr Creesa, they have some guys, Dalen Terry, that I believe in. They all returned from a year ago. And, and Rob, let me say this. When you coach a group like them who wasn't eligible for last year's NCAA tournament because we self-imposed, weren't able to play in the Pac-12 tournament, and you have an offseason and a lot of guys return, they're a hungry team. You can see it. And I give Tommy Lloyd a lot of credit. He's implementing his style they're playing super fast they right now i think lead america and assist for field goals assisted field goals per game and i think when you look at how they're playing the confidence they have ucla and sc that's it but washington state i think is solid but right now the only way a fourth team will get in the ncaa tournament from the pac-12 is if they win the pac-12 tournament i hate to say it but that, that's the fact. I mean, I will have no credibility if I continue to talk about this Pac-12 like they're six or seven deep, right? And they aren't. But those three do not sleep on those three teams that I talked about. 
Arizona, UCLA, and SC. Uh, that's it. I don't think anyone's surprised to see UCLA being this good. And I'm personally not surprised to see Arizona being uh, as good as they have been. But USC is the one that that kind of got me a little bit. I thought that they had potential. I did not think that they would be this good. I thought that Evan Mobley was too much to replace. Are you? Did you see this coming from them? I did because their supporting cast with Evan a year ago was very understated, very underrated. I mean, they had an older group last year. They played very well together. They were an excellent defensive team from start to finish. And a lot of those same guys are back. And that's the one thing, Rob, returning experience. You know, Arch and I talk about it every day. You know, it's one thing to get a player who played in your program a year ago that returns. But when you can get a starter, an all-conference player, to return – that's worth its weight in gold because now you're getting older, but they're astute with your system. It's kind of what we talked about with Villanova. You know, they have that going for them, right? Where they've been together, they're older, they, they return the same players in the same roles from a year ago across the board. And I think in, in, in with USC, they have that. And then the X factor has become Boogie Ellis because Boogie Ellis is a scorer, a shooter, and he has the ball in his hands he gives them some firepower that I think their offense needed. Washington state, you know, they're an interesting team because I think, you know, they're much improved and Sean, you know, Kyle's a really good coach, but they have uh, five non-conference games left. And, you know, when you look at those guys, huge game tomorrow night for Washington state, they play, I believe an undefeated Weber state team. You don't know how big that game is for Washington yep. state at home, but they're going to get Washington state, a really good South Dakota state, a really good New Mexico state in Northern Colorado, all at home before they go semi home against Boise, before they go into the league, Washington state, if they would go 11 and two um, with five more wins here heading into the league or even third loss, if they go into conference play here, because they've already split their first conference day, they got 18 left. But if they go into conference play with three losses after Christmas or two losses, Washington State can make a run and get into the tournament with some good wins, beating the UCLA at home or, you know, getting totally, Arizona. Totally disagree with you, little brother. Why, totally Why do you say that? Because I'm going to stick to what I've said. It's not that Washington State isn't good enough because they're on the border. They could, they could be a tournament team, but they're not going to be allowed to be in this year's NCAA tournament because of the losses that the Pac-12 has incurred as a conference in the non-conference play. Not going to be allowed. There's, there's too many losses. And when they start to play this 20-game schedule, they're not going to get enough credit for their conference games versus some of these other conferences that we're talking about. You play a road game in the Big East in January or February, or if you play a road game in the Big Ten or the Big 12, you're going to get so much credit for playing that game because those teams are going to be quad one and quad two. You look at the Pac-12 right now, because of November and December, it has decimated the conference, other than the three teams that we talked about. So the bottom, any team below those four that you're talking about has really hurt Washington State's you. Well, what really, what really, or really hurt in Washington State is their draw in league uh, because they lost to USC at home. That's one opportunity against the big three. Right. By two. But they only have they only have Arizona, UCLA, and USC one time. So they're only going to play the big three four total games. So they're going to have a hard time. They have to run a serious. They'd have to make a serious run. I apologize to Washington State. I love Kyle Smith. If, if they're in the NIT or you play them, you're playing a heck of a basketball team. They might be a year away from really being a tournament team, but I'm telling you, it's what I, what I keep harping on because I lived it out here. When you're, you see the Pac-12 start getting beat in non-conference, you just panic because the Pac-12, you know how they have the first four in the NCAA tournament? It's actually the Pac-12 and the three others. There's always a Pac-12 team in the first four of the, end of the NCAA tournament. Remember, last year, UCLA would have played Michigan State at UD Arena in Dayton, Ohio. In the first four, they got to the final four, right? I mean, if you look at it, every year the Pac-12 gets that one team in and whatever. But this year, uh, 
I think that's where it's at. I will say that those three teams at the top are very good. And I would include Arizona in that with USC and UCLA. I think they're very good. All right. Before we get out of here, I want to play a little game of buy, sell, hold with you guys. Uh, I got five teams listed here. I'm going to ask you if you want to buy them, uh, meaning you think they're going to get better. They turned a corner. Uh, season's on an upward trajectory. You want to sell them, think, meaning that you think that they've kind of hit their peak or the bottom's about to fall out or hold. You just uh, you don't know. You don't really have an opinion yet. I'm going to start with the team that we already talked about tonight, and that's Virginia. Uh, buy, sell, hold. Arch, I'm going to you first on this one. Well, I think one of the things that's working against Virginia, other than the things that we talked about, um, is, to be honest with you, is the ACC being uh, right now probably a notch above the Pac-12, but it's down. And Virginia, um, you know, being who they are, they're going to have winnable games, but I'm not sure the power of those wins will carry the weight with their non-conference resume. Virginia is going to get better defensively. And in my opinion, they're going to be a top four or fives. They'll be a top half team in the ACC when it's all said and done. Um, but I'm going to sell Virginia right now based I'm on one, they're where they are, but two, the ACC, um, its strength is, is really, really an odd year for them um, when it comes to the power, the power ball that they're going to play in January and February. I'm selling Virginia, Rob, and what they need to hope for is that it's kind of like open the doors and have that Buffalo cold weather where, you know, it doesn't matter about offense. You know, the Patriots only threw the ball three times and won the game at Buffalo because of the weather. It's like that's kind of what Virginia needs, man. They just they need to overcome such an obstacle with their offense. They have to win exclusively with their defense. It's too hard in today's game. It just it's too hard to win like that game in game out I don't I don't see that turning around for them I mean when you think about the ACC right now obviously Duke is a cut above with where they're at I think everybody would agree with that but who's the second best team you know who's the third best team you know for years you'd be able to bang off four or five right in a row of top 10 top 15 teams and you know right now at the ACC Duke may be the only ranked team in the top 25 and we're heading towards Christmas so um, there's some teams that are going to emerge and there's some teams that are going to have some really good seasons in that league. But as it states, you have Pitt with six losses, Georgia Tech with three, Clemson with four, Notre Dame with four, Syracuse with four now, Virginia with four losses going into league play. So the ACC is not going to get the power um, benefit of the doubt that, he, that it usually does when it comes um, to March. All right, the second team we're going to talk about here, Sean, I'm going to you first on this one because you mentioned them and wanted them brought up. Uh, That's Alabama. They are a team that just picked up one of the more impressive wins that we've seen this season, I think, going into Seattle and knocking off a Gonzaga team in a game that was never really close outside of the first 10 minutes. Uh, But they also lost to Iona on a neutral floor in, I believe that was the Orlando, the ESPN sport, whatever they're calling that event down there. It uh, It was on a neutral floor. So, uh, what do you make of this Alabama team? Are you buying, selling, or holding? I'm buying them. I think Nate Oates does as good of a job coaching his team as anyone in today's college basketball. You cannot understate what they just did. They flew across the country to Seattle, Washington. Uh, they played a team that is on fire, played against a coach that in his time over 20-some years, I don't know how many games he's lost in, in the state of Washington, right? Uh, I mean – the battle of Seattle, historically, they've owned that. And uh, for them to go in there and, and beat them the way they beat them, their guard play is outstanding. They have plenty of guards. They have young talent. They have older guards. Uh, they shoot the three. They play great defense. They play with pace in a frenetic way. And I think they're hard to play against. But one of the most impressive games this college basketball season happened when they beat Gonzaga in Seattle. That was, that was an amazing, incredible win. Buying. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm buying Alabama too. And it's not, it's not just because they beat Gonzaga, but Nate Oates here in recent memory has scheduled some of the hardest games that you can possibly schedule. And I'm not talking about like the Gonzagas. I'm talking about Louisiana Tech, South Dakota State, uh, Drake, 
Um, Houston at home this weekend in Tuscaloosa. That right there is going to be uh, one hell of a game right there with Houston uh, and, the, and how they play defense. And, but they got Memphis still to go and uh, Jacksonville State. And then they play a great Colorado State team um, in Birmingham right before the holiday on the 21st. So he's going to go into conference play, playing as hard of a schedule as anybody's played. And you're going to know way before they get into league play that that's a bye team. They've tested themselves. They've played on the road, neutral. They've done it all. And uh, to me, the most exciting game to me is going to be watch Houston go into Tuscaloosa and play Alabama this weekend. I think that's going to be a hell of a game. A lot of tough fearless. Teams. Al- Alabama, Alabama is fearless. They're mm-hmm. fearless. You know, Michigan State football came up with the phrase relentless. You know, when I think of Alabama basketball right now, they have a fearless approach. Their style of play, how they recruit, when they play. Arch talked about scheduling. They believe in themselves, and it starts with their head coach. He does an amazing job. He really does. He's very good at finding guys that fit the style. I, I don't want to call it a system because that makes it seems like it's gimmicky, but the style that he wants to play, he's very good at, at identifying players that will fit into exactly what he wants, whether it's uh, Herb Jones or a Keon Ellis or Shackelford or Javon Quinterly. He knows what works for what he does, and he's very good at finding those guys. No doubt, and they play his style as well. You know, I, I think he really puts an emphasis on quickness, so it's skill and quickness when you watch them. It's not just quickness without skill guys that can't shoot or catch. And it's not the skill level where you have the premier shooting, but they can't move and, and, and pressure. He, he has a group of guys that are both quick. I think that he instills the toughness, but they're also skilled. And they have the ability to really strike from beyond that three-point line. They take a lot of them. But although they play fast, they're also playing some excellent defense. And I thought that really showed out at Gonzaga. I mean, they defended them very well. I think they're in for a hard, I think they're in for a really hard, hard, hard game on Saturday. And I think Houston can beat them. I mean, I really do. Although going into Tuscaloosa will be, you know, difficult, you know, environment and whatnot, but Houston's defense is fantastic. I mean, I, th- I think they're the best defensive team in the country. I think they're the best rebounding team in the country. Um, I don't know if they have enough offense to beat Alabama, but they can give them a run for their money. You know what's interesting, Rob, if you follow a guy like Kelvin Sampson? When you watch these teams at Oklahoma, what did you think of? What was their identity? What were they good at? When he went to Indiana for that period of time, what did you think of? What were they good at? Now you watch me, Houston. It's always the same things, you know, and I think that's when you really see a great coach. And, and, you know, we've talked about guys doing great jobs with their teams. Calvin Sampson, he, he's a Hall of Fame coach. He really is. He's taken Oklahoma to the Final Four. He's taken Houston to the Final Four. He was on his way at Indiana. He's been at places like Washington State. You forget when he was the coach at Washington State, he did a great job at Washington State before he left. But his teams have a toughness that rebounding arch is talking about that identity, that nastiness, and that trans that translates, man. I mean, when you when you play Houston home away neutral court, you know you're in for a rock fight. And I will really be interested to watch Alabama Houston this weekend. That will be a great game in college basketball. All right, let's move on to another team that we're going to talk about here. It's uh, it's your Big Ten guys, Arch. We're going to go to Michigan first and foremost. <laughs> they just picked up a. I think they won by 40 at Nebraska, and they're coming off of a 15-point win over a good San Diego State team yeah. uh, the weekend. So are we are we buying Michigan here? Are, are I'm, we buying Michi- I'm buying Michigan. They're just going to keep getting better. They're playing a lot of young guys. They have a new new parts, and they have even their returners are in completely different roles. Eli Brooks, when he's the fifth option, that's much different than the best perimeter score that you have early in the season, which he's not used to doing. Same with uh, Brandon Johns. Brandon Johns didn't score in double figures, I don't believe, coming in all season until he got to Nebraska tonight. And Brandon Johns is a better player than that, and they need him to be that. But it's a team that's going to continue to mold. And uh, the thing, and Sean has said this a number of times, 
regardless of how they're doing it right now and they're figuring it out, they're, t- they're a top 10 defense. They're big. They got a lot of dudes with great size, and they're going to play really hard. And I don't care where you go on the road. Number one, when you go to Nebraska, a lot of people don't understand it. There's 15,000 Cornhusker fans in there. I mean, that place is as good of an environment as you're going to play. And, you know, they went to North Carolina, didn't play well. They came back at home, responded and beat a good San Diego State team. And then they go on the road in league play and win by 35. You know, to me, they have Minnesota on Saturday at home. They go to 2-0 and in the conference to get started. Nobody understands how important that is to get these early December games under your belt. But Michigan's going to get better. They have a stud inside. They have a lot of young guys that are really talented. They're getting better. They've challenged themselves with their schedule. They've taken a few lumps. But the Big Ten is strong enough where they're going to have enough opportunities. And I don't know if Michigan's a Final Four team. I don't know if Michigan has the firepower, the shooting on offense to be able to do, um, you know, maybe a Big Ten title team. But to me, they're a team that's a second weekend team. Um, They can finish in the top, you know, three, four teams in the Big Ten. They can play for a great seed. Um, But Michigan's a team you want to buy because they're testing themselves, playing a lot of young guys. Their older guys are in different roles. And to me, these last two games after getting hit pretty good at North Carolina, it's a really good response for them. If they get Minnesota on Saturday at home, they get 2-0 and in the conference before they go. They'll enter league play, you know, to be honest with you, with maybe three losses heading into the league. And uh, that's where they want to be. Yeah, you mentioned not enough shooting. For the record, Hunter Dickinson, their seven-foot-one center, has hit four threes uh, the last two games. Sean, are you on the same page? You're buying Michigan? I'm buying Michigan in a large part because I think when you have a player like Hunter Dickinson, who had an outstanding freshman year, went deep in the tournament, returns, right? A returning starter, a year older. Um, he he is he's a difference maker. I mean, he's a big fella, scores on offense, he's a load. And um, I, I I agree with Arch's points. They're only going to get better. They're a tournament team, and it's it's good to see them respond from maybe a couple early setbacks. Uh, it really is. But I'm buying Michigan. I'm buying Jim Harbaugh. I'm buying Michigan football. I'm buying Michigan basketball. I'm buying it all. All right, let's stick in the Big Ten then, Sean, and uh, and talk to me about Illinois. Uh, they are coming off of a, I believe they beat Rutgers by 35 over the At home, kids. yeah. They took care of Rutgers at home and then yeah. Iowa last night. Yep. Yeah, they're nice. playing well. I mean, I think that's an easy, yes, by them. Obviously. You know, it'll be interesting. Arizona plays at Illinois Saturday. Uh, Saturday. That'll be fun. And you talk about Houston at Alabama, Arizona at Illinois. That will be a great, great game. Uh, but Kofi, kind of, I talked about Hunter Dickinson. You know, Kofi's now in his third year, and he might even be more of a difference maker. I mean, his his physical presence on defense and on offense his ability to get fouled, score at the rim, and then just the parts around them. Um, the, sh- the, the the shooter. I can't Alfonso Plummer. I'm sorry. Pac-12 Alfonso guy. Plummer. I'm sorry. Pac-12 Alfonso. guy. You got Didn't know he it. play in the Pac-12? He <laughs> is. I'm telling you right now, I don't know if there's a better shooter in college basketball than Alfonso Plummer. What he did a year ago, he played with Colorado at home had a huge lead over Utah. He single-handedly in the last five minutes of the game brought a comeback that there was an amazing epic comeback where Utah won the game. I'm going to say he made five or six threes in the last five minutes of that game, but that's what he can do. He's not only a great shooter, but he has this way of playing where he can just in a segment of a game, just win the game for his team. He can, he can just rattle off like two, three, four threes in a row. And I think you're starting to see that. But when you have a big guy like Kofi, you have the rest of the cast that Illinois has. And then you have a shooter like Plummer. I think that's a a lot of great ingredients to to be a really good team. A year ago, Illinois, they were a one seed. Am I right, Arch? Mm -hmm. Yes. They're they're probably not going to ever reach that this year. But they're a very, very good team. I'm buying Illinois. I'm buying, I'm buying Illinois, but I'm worried. 
You know, I think the straw that, that stirs the drink isn't a part of their success right now. He's actually probably a part of the dysfunction um, early in the year when they were struggling. And uh, Andre Curbelo being injured right now and being out, hopefully that takes a little stress and a little of the weight off of his shoulders that he sees he's playing with a great group. And all he has to do is come out, you know, kind of be the director of the orchestra, so to speak, and get back to playing solid ball because he's as good as it gets when he's playing the right way and he's healthy. And uh, it also helps Trent Frazier because Trent Frazier is going to struggle shooting the ball. If he has to do so much ball handling, you know, he's a, he's a really, really good sniper and he's a terrific defender, but you know, when you have to push the ball and do what they're doing on the other end, it'll take some steam out of him. They need Andre Corbello to come back to reach their full potential, but they're playing inspired right now. Uh, the road win at Iowa last night, um, Carver Hawkeyes, a, a hard place to play. Those two teams go at it really, really hard. And for them to be able to weather the run they did in the first half, come back with the win. And then they, they, they already have two big 10 games in, in the bag. People don't understand like these early ones. What does it mean? You sort of forget about these games when you get into February, but they got two in the bag already. Um, I think they're in the top two. Uh, top three teams in the Big Ten, <clears throat> they're going to contend. Uh, I think they're a top four seed. And, you know, to me, with with Curbelo clicking and having Kofi and now Plummer, who's averaging about 25 a game in his last five, and their other supporting cast has clearly improved with Hawkins and Grandison, I think I think I don't have any problem saying that Illinois has, a, has the makings of a team that can make a deep run. All right, last team that we're going to talk about and then we're going to get out of here is Florida. Uh, they started the season out 6-0. and They picked up a win over Florida State. They knocked off Ohio State in the championship of the Fort Myers, whatever event it was down. I, can, I can't keep track of all of these MTVs. There's uh, MTEs. There's too many of them at this point. But this week, the, uh, the wheels kind of fell off. They lost at Oklahoma last Wednesday. Um, and then last night, they got blown out at home by Texas Southern the first time that a SWAC team has beaten a ranked SEC team ever in the history of the SWAC. So, uh, Sean, I'm going to go to you first on this one um, again. Are you buying, selling, or holding Florida at this point? I'm buying Florida. Final exams, they had a lot of guys studying, pulling all-nighters, doing papers, figuring it out, trying to get great grades in the first semester. Things happen. And I think that this game, this loss for them, will be a rallying cry. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way on the day it happens, but soon after there's so many lessons to be learned that if we don't fix this, if we're not ready, if we're not out our best, these are the consequences. And unfortunately that's a loss that will stick with them, but it also can spur them on to becoming the same team that beat Ohio State and the same team that's gotten off to a really hot start. Um, I, I think Mike White does a great job every year going through these peaks and valleys with some of his teams, they become hardened as the year goes on and I'm buying Florida. Yeah, I'm buying, I'm buying Florida as well. I think they play extremely hard. They're a great defensive team and uh, you know, they're nine for 48 in their last two games from three. You go on the road at Oklahoma, you lose a hard fought game at Oklahoma, you know, and then you come home against Texas Southern People don't understand Texas Southern has literally played every team in the country on the road. I mean, they, they played at Washington. They played everybody. It's not like they're, you see the 0 and 7, but if you research them and you figure out what they're doing, they're probably going to be in the NCAA tournament again. I mean, that's just the things they have to do at the beginning of the year, ridiculous playing the games that they have to play. But the only thing that concerned me about the Texas Southern game was, I think you guys said it as well, they got doubled up on the glass which means there's probably some other issues going on in that game and throughout the game. You don't get doubled up on the glass at home by Texas Southern, but their last two games, they're nine for 48 from three. And I think that can come back around. They've been shooting the ball pretty well leading into that, but you know, they have North Florida. They got big one against Maryland neutral South Florida and Stony Brook left before they go into conference play. I'd say they're going to get four in a row and they're going to be 10 and two going into the sec and they're going to be fine. Well, listen, guys, I appreciate you guys jumping on uh, and doing the After Dark show with us. Uh, so for Sean Miller and for Archie Miller, my name is Rob Doster. Uh, this was fun. Thanks, guys. Hey, Rob, by Colorado State.
Yeah, oh, yes. Offense. The fighting Nico Medveds. Yeah. And what I'd say to Colorado State as a spectator at their game this weekend, they need more restrooms in the arena. <laughs> you can't have 9,000 fans with two restrooms. I was in a line of 175 people. It took me 27 minutes to go from the end of the line to go into the bathroom, you know. So I think good. They're undefeated. I'm buying you. You need more bathrooms in your arena. Speaking of buying, did you make Goodman pay for dinner? He, yeah, I, I actually did. Yeah. I think I that's did. the first time that he's paid for dinner uh, since I've known him. You caught me off guard. I've forgotten all that he was even there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. See you guys. Yeah. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.